You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the sizzling midsummer edition of Heart Sounds. I'm your host, Shelley Wood, managing editor at TCTMD.com. If you're new to the Heart Sounds podcast, lucky you! This is your once-a-month chance to listen in on some of the most interesting tidbits from the cardiology stories covered by the TCTMD news team. Our reporters call up physicians and other healthcare folks all over the world to write the news for TCTMD. Heart Sounds lets you eavesdrop on some of those conversations. As I told you last month, all of us behind the scenes for the Heart Sounds podcast have been trying to drum up nominations in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Please consider lending a hand. The contest closes at the end of July, so if you're listening to this and it's still July, please drop whatever you're doing, unless you're driving, and find the Vote for Heart Sounds button halfway down the TCTMD homepage. Heart Sounds is competing in the science and medicine category. While you're doing that, have a listen to some of the hottest cardiology news from July 2018. Let's lead off with a story TCTMD's Laura McEwen covered this month, looking at concomitant use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and the non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant, dabigatran, by patients with atrial fibrillation. According to a new analysis from the RELY trial, this combo should be avoided. Compared with patients who did not use NSAIDs, NSAID users, who made up nearly 2,300 of the 18,000 patients in this trial, had a significantly increased rate of major bleeding, major GI bleeding, and risk of stroke or systemic embolism. NSAID users were also more likely to require hospitalization than non-users. The analysis was led by Anthony Kent of Yale New Haven Health in Bridgeport, Connecticut, with results published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Laura spoke with senior researcher Michael Azikowicz of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He stressed that the number of older adults taking NSAIDs who also have AFib is growing and there are few other options for pain relief in this group. What's more, many doctors treating these patients may be unaware of the risks. This clip includes two separate pieces of Laura's conversation with Azikowicz. There needs to be education on this. And the uh, general practitioners, particularly in my experience, are unaware of this danger. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, they need to be uh, diligent in reporting that the risk of bleeding and the risk of uh, strokes and systemic embolization in this patient population. What we're trying to say here is that these drugs should be avoided because of the complications, but um, they're not absolutely contraindicated because the options may be uh, even worse than the NSAID. So um, they have, we have to be careful. Mm-hmm. So individualized and used sparingly or not at all? Yes, but preferably not at all. If you are a regular reader of TCTMD or a habitual listener here at HeartSounds, you'll already know that the hypertension guidelines released late last year by the AHA, ACC, and other groups have had their share of detractors. Much of the concern is centered on just how many more people are now labeled as hypertensive. By way of reminder, the new guidelines lowered the recommended treatment goal to below 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury across patient groups and changed the classification of different blood pressure levels. 
Stage 1 hypertension now starts with a systolic pressure of at least 130 or a diastolic pressure of at least 80 millimeters Hg. In a new study led by Rohan Kira of UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, researchers decided to put this dramatic increase in perspective. They calculated what would happen if China, a country of more than 1.4 billion people, were to adopt the new U.S. guidelines. Kira and colleagues found that 55% of people aged 45 to 75 in China would be classified as hypertensive. That's up from 38% under prior recommendations. That compares with 63% of Americans in that age group, up from 49.7%, according to the new hypertension definitions. Todd Neal covered this story for TCTMD and spoke with senior author on the study, Harlan Krumholtz of Yale University. Krumholtz made the point that while the sheer numbers are boggling in and of themselves, there are other societal questions that need to be asked. Part of this is about thinking about the implementation side of guidelines and what it would take in order to achieve it. And I think it's meant to inform a public dialogue about whether this is a good direction, whether not only in an ideal world where you could get everyone to a lower blood pressure, would that be beneficial, but in the real world where you have a certain amount of resources in order to provide health care to a population, what's the best approach? And if you are to accommodate you know, so many more people being under treatment or under surveillance, you got to start thinking, how do you, how do you do that? And, and if you do want to go in that direction, it may stimulate you to think that, well, maybe we need non-physicians to be providing a lot of the care for hypertension because we simply don't have enough physicians to be able to provide all the care that would be necessary if you were to try to comply with a looser definition of hypertension. Earlier this month, Caitlin Cox took on a study that looked into whether a controversial U.S. Department of Justice investigation into ICD use actually had any impact on physician decision-making. Back in 2005, the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid issued a national coverage determination for ICDs, specifying, among other things, that implantation of the devices should be delayed until 40 days after a myocardial infarction and 90 days after PCI or cabbage. In 2008, two individuals filed a formal complaint under the False Claims Act that these waiting periods often went unheeded. The DOJ launched its investigation that year, only announcing it to hospitals in 2010 and to the public in 2011. Ultimately, more than 500 hospitals settled with the agency for more than $280 million. For the new JAMA paper, researchers compared ICD volumes for 2007 through 2015 between hospitals that did and didn't settle with the DOJ. Hospitals that settled saw sharper decreases in ICDs for primary prevention compared with those that didn't settle. Moreover, secondary prevention with ICDs held relatively steady, and patterns didn't differ based on whether patients were or weren't Medicare beneficiaries. Caitlin spoke with senior author Jephtha Curtis of Yale School of Medicine to find out if the DOJ's investigation actually had its desired effect. My, my interpretation is generally that it's actually fairly positive. Um, I think that the investigation seemed to do quite effectively what it was intended to do, which is to make sure that clinicians implanting these devices paid very close attention to the criteria for reimbursement. And I think as clinicians, speaking as a clinician, sometimes we don't think about that when we're taking care of an individual patient. 
Yeah. Not that it should be the only factor, but I think it needs to be an important one. So, you know, I think that, that seeing the, the, the rapid change in the proportion of cases that weren't meeting the coverage decision mm-hmm. is, in fact, encouraging that the people responded in a positive fashion. Yeah. And the second piece of encouraging or the second encouraging finding is that we really didn't see any drop in the rate of or the volume of secondary prevention ICD right. placements. Yeah. And that's something that going into the study, we were really worried that we would find. Um, certainly, that was one of the, the prospects that was raised when the announcement of the investigation occurred in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we looked at this and we didn't find a, a signal or didn't find a change in volume, um, it suggests, doesn't confirm, but suggests that some of the unintended consequences of the investigation were not realized. On July 10th, the United States Preventive Services Task Force issued new recommendations for the use of non-traditional risk factors in the assessment of cardiovascular disease. The USPSTF concluded that there is insufficient evidence to assess the risk-benefit trade-off of three add-on tests, high-sensitivity CRP, ankle brachial index, and coronary artery calcium. This last, in particular, appeared to baffle many of the experts contacted by TCTMD, several of whom said that the USPSTF seemed to ignore nearly a decade worth of data on coronary calcium tests. Michael O'Reardon wrote our first story covering the USPSTF news for TCTMD. A few days later, Yael Maxwell got an earful on this same subject at the annual meeting of the Society for Cardiovascular Computed Tomography in Grapevine, Texas. I hope you'll seek out both Mike's original story and Yael's follow-up on TCTMD. In the meantime, here's Karim Nasir of Yale University School of Medicine speaking with Mike, explaining why he thinks the USPSTF has not kept up with the evidence. Immediately after Nasir, you'll hear from Ron Blankstein of the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who spoke with Yael at the SCCT meeting. Since 2013, the requirement was we were overestimated risk in majority of the individuals. About two-thirds of them are statin candidates, and our stakeholders are really looking something that can de-risk uncertain patients so they can make informed choices about their staff. And at a population level, we don't have to treat so many people, and that's what the studies have established all of this work, including ours. SCCT consensus guidelines uh, endorsed that. And mind you, it didn't endorse for screening. It endorsed for shared decision-making. And I believe that the new HA guidelines will come out strongly endorsing this concept. Unfortunately, the USC task force is still stuck in that old screening paradigm. We have moved on from the screening aspect and I think so it's time that they move on from this and understand that this is a decision aid rather than a screening tool and if they start looking at it from that prism they'll understand the value that it imparts. I think there's a tremendous amount of data showing that calcium score adds on top of traditional risk factors that it adds on top of the pool cohort equations mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, uh, selective use of calcium scoring is, uh, in my mind, completely supported by uh, data that we have right now and should have uh, gotten a Class C recommendation yeah. by the USPSTF. So by not doing that, we are really depriving uh, uh, patients of an, of an important test.
As the July edition of the Heart Sounds podcast was hitting the airwaves, the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid was in the midst of a day-long meeting of its Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee, MedCAC. The goal? To review the national coverage determination for transcatheter aortic valve replacement and, in particular, to reevaluate whether procedural volume requirements for starting and maintaining TAVR programs are supported by the current data. Todd Neal is covering the MedCAC meeting, and you'll find his story on tctmd.com July 26th. But in the lead-up to the meeting, Todd also covered the release of a multi-society consensus document outlining the recommendations of two surgery and two cardiology organizations for procedure volumes and quality. Their consensus was that existing TAVR programs should perform at least 50 transcatheter procedures per year, or 100 over two years, and at least 30 surgical aortic valve replacements, or 60 over two years. They also suggested requirements for performance on various quality metrics dealing with morbidity, mortality, and quality of life at defined time points, and for having a quality assessment slash improvement program. One other issue came up in the days before the CMS MedCAC meeting. This took the form of an editorial written by a handful of surgeons and cardiologists calling for an end to the need for two surgeons to sign off before a patient could be considered for TAVR. I wrote a little story about this controversy for TCTMD after speaking with lead author Satya Srinivas of the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati. He told me something I didn't know which is that no two physicians can bill Medicare for the same procedure or consultation on the same day, making this particularly difficult for out-of-town patients, some of whom travel long distances to get worked up for these procedures. Here's Srinivas explaining to me why he and others think two surgeons sign-off for TAVR needs to be dropped in the new NCD. In our experience, while the other points that were brought up in the consensus document are all very important points to discuss, day-to-day, the largest barrier to patients getting a TAVR or just a workup for aortic stenosis, even if they go to surgery, most patients are being at least considered for TAVR. And one of the biggest barriers is saying, hey, uh, in addition to seeing your own doc and then a surgeon, the second surgeon, just in case you end up going to TAVR, uh, a lot of these patients have to go through this process, and it's been the largest barrier, in our opinion, to patients getting timely care. Now, that's okay if what we call a barrier is actually a good thing, and it results in better patient care, or it results in better use of resources, or better use of the technology that we're talking about. But unfortunately, the more and more we run, run into this, the more and more we start asking ourselves, is there any data? Or there any rationale? Can we back this up? And anything that insurance companies or Medicare pay for in this day and age, certainly, is justified by data. If you want to get a drug, if you want to get a prescription, if you want to go see a referral or to a specialist, you've got to justify that with pre-cert or, or what have you, some kind of process. It's interesting, then, that here is what we think is a barrier to care without any data improving outcomes. But yet, we take this as something that is absolutely, depending on who you talk to, sacrosanct. That is that for the July edition of Heart Sounds. Let me tell you for the last time that if you like what you hear on Heart Sounds, give us a leg up with the People's Choice Podcast Awards. 
As mentioned, you can find the Vote for Heart Sounds button halfway down the TCTMD homepage in the podcast section. They don't make voting particularly easy. You've got to register and get a link via your email to continue, presumably so they know you're a human voter, not a bot. I hope you can leap gracefully through all those hoops and ultimately vote for Heart Sounds in the science and medicine category. I figure, if you find folks were interested in taking it easy, you probably wouldn't have gotten interested in medicine in the first place, and you wouldn't be listening to this light and fluffy podcast. We've got lots going on next month. Yael Maxwell has been working on a feature story looking at how physicians keep up to date in 2018, so keep an eye out for that in the next few weeks. We've also had journalism grad student Lucy Hicks with us all summer. Lucy is this year's recipient of TCTMD's Jason Kahn Fellowship, and she's been turning around some great stories. You'll be hearing more from Lucy herself in next month's edition of Heart Sounds. At the end of August, I myself, along with TCTMD reporters Todd Neal and Michael Reardon, will be on the ground covering the ESC Congress in Munich. Hope to see some of you there. In the meantime, if you have a news tip for us, drop me a line. You can find me via my bio on tctmd.com, or I'm Shellywood2 on Twitter. I count myself pretty darn lucky to work with the great folks at TCTMD News, who help me pull together this podcast each month, and who kindly share their audio clips for your listening pleasure. Thanks also go to Albert Berkshire of Great Creative, and Daniel Parker and the CRF Studios for making me sound halfway decent. As for all of you out there listening, thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds.